There is an old saying attributed to the Sama Balangini that goes, It is difficult to catch a fish, but easy to catch Borneans. Situated at the midpoint between mainland Mindanao and Borneo, in the dead center of the Sulu Sea, is a tiny clump of islets whose land area ebbed and flowed with the tide. The biggest of them, Balangini, is only around a kilometer wide and ringed all around with swamps of mangrove and strong currents that could drag even an anchored ship back to the open sea. At the time of the Spanish colonial period, the Sama-speaking people who lived there scratched out a living by selling coconuts, manufacturing salt, or fishing. There was no fresh water anywhere on the island. The harsh conditions meant that they had to rely on trade with larger islands like Holo for vegetables, fruit, rice, and other goods. But when the monsoon lifted and the easterly winds began blowing in the summer, the Sama Balangini were transformed. The rough waters around their islands already made them into expert sailors and boat builders. Now, with the winds cutting strong and clear across the sky, the Balangini would embark on their daring, dreaded yearly raids. For 381 years, the islands of the Philippines were occupied by conquistadors, missionaries, merchants, soldiers, spies, and colonizers of every stripe. That's 381 years of history, and we're here to talk about the stories lost in between the cracks of the centuries. This is Occupy Pilipinas Episode 7, Steam, Sail, and Slavery. The Balangini sailed out twice a year, March 1st and then November. They favored the Garay, a large swift ship or prahu, made of rattan and bamboo and nipa, sitting light on the water, large rectangular sails broad against the wind, the ends of each vessel sharp and wedged like knives. They plundered the Pacific coasts of northwest Bicol, striking at Karamoan, Daet, Indan, Kapalonga. They swung around the northern point of Luzon and raided Zambales yearly. From there, they ventured to the south, attacking Palawan, Panay, Negros, Samar, Cebu, Mindanao. They even sailed to Brunei and Borneo for even more captives, operating from a temporary base in Palawan. Their most favorite tactic was to take out 25-foot canoes from their garay and pretend to be fishermen. Leaving their large ships at daybreak, the Balangini raiders would row swiftly and silently to beaches where villagers would be bent over the sand, digging up sea urchins or mussels or agar. There was no time to raise the alarm when the boats pulled up to the shore. The Balangini chased down their victims, striking them with wooden clubs and laying them out on the sand. Anyone who resisted was killed. When the raiders took their captives back to the Prahu, 
women and children were brought in first as they would command higher prices back in Sulu. Their reputation was so fearsome that merchant ships would rather blow themselves up than risk being captured. In 1838, a Dutch cutter loaded with a cargo of copper found itself surrounded by 10 Balangingi Prahu. The chase lasted all day, the pirates firing a constant barrage of shot and stones. When they boarded the ship, its captain, C.Z. Peters, bleeding severely from his left arm, came face to face with the Prahu captain and then threw a lit cigar into a keg of gunpowder beside him. Peters miraculously survived his own suicidal last stand and became a Balangingi slave. The Sama Balangingi's home islands were the perfect hideout. Desolate, isolated, protected by treacherous waters and almost impassable coastal terrain. In 1845, when the Spanish mounted two unsuccessful expeditions against their home base, the Balangingi people, their numbers bolstered by the captive slaves, as well as Christian renegados from Luzon and Visayas who had joined their ranks, were governed by a feared panglima named Julano Taupan. To call the 1845 Spanish attacks as expeditions may be underselling the ventures a little. In their second assault, they assembled an entire fleet, more than 30 vessels strong, including the frigate Esperanza. Both times though, the Balangingi easily repulsed the invaders with few casualties on their side. But as the Spanish slinked back to safe harbor in Zamboanga, they now had enough information on the Balangingi defenses and terrain to regroup for a final attack. One that would be led by Governor General Narciso Claveria himself. Why the need for yearly raids? What compelled the seafaring people to take to the sails and plunder entire communities, chaining up their men and women? There are two competing theories about this. The first, offered by Nicholas Starling, blames the rise of piratical acts on the actions of the monopolistic European powers. As the colonial Western nations began to tighten their control on the regional seas, the Sama Balangini found their local trade markets on the brink of collapse. They had no choice then except to go raiding. But another, perhaps more convincing theory takes another tack. Historian James Francis Warren actually turns the situation the other way. They didn't raid because their economy was shrinking. They rounded up slaves because the economy was doing the exact opposite thing. Warren argued that the yearly raids were an offshoot of a booming, prosperous trade going on between Sulu, Borneo, Indonesia, and Malaysia during that time. This is not so hard to imagine. It was the same for the Vikings, who for three centuries would raid settlements across Europe, 
and trade captives along routes that stretched from Scandinavia all the way to Baghdad. Think of the United States too and how the transatlantic slave trade propped up that fledgling country's plantation fields and cotton exports. Human trafficking drove a huge part of the economy of the Sulu archipelago. In that long jutting tendril of islands that stretched eastwards from mainland Mindanao almost into Borneo, slaves were a valuable commodity. They harvested crops, tended to the house, or swam down to the bottom of the sea to pry open oysters for pearls. They also doubled as acceptable currency. One able-bodied captive was worth 200 to 300 gantas of rice, while the sale of 6 to 8 slaves could get you an outrigger sailing boat. A cannon could even be rented for one slave. It is estimated that by 1850, almost half of the population of Sulu consisted of slaves or their descendants. To own slaves was to have wealth, honor, and status. Even before the arrival of Islam in the 14th century, the different people of the Sulu archipelago were already known as proficient sea traders and raiders. To their victims, of course, there could only be one word for them. Pirates. Wrote one captive from the Spanish colonial period. The inhabitants of these places live by piracy. They have no other means of existence. In fact, piracy is the general vocation of the people. By the 19th century, there was no place in the whole of the Philippines that did not fear the coming of the Moros. These fleets of marauders rode on the easterly winds and descended like lightning storms, often at night, upon the vulnerable coasts. Thanks to the Spanish policy of reducción, where the native population was resettled into centralized communities so that they could be ministered, taxed, and rounded up into forced labor. Christian settlements were among these raiders' favored targets. Prohibited from keeping firearms by the authorities, locals could only flee into the forests or mount feeble palisades at the first sight of marauding fleets of Prahu. These fleets were made up of different ships, Joanga or Lanong of 80 or 90 feet shields and swivel guns mounted across the sides. The smaller, swifter garay, with a cannon fixed along its bow. The sleek penjajap or panko, 15 oarsmen on each side rowing hard to the shore. The warriors aboard carrying muskets, bamboo lances, sinuous criss blades, or the tapered spiked swords called kampilan. These ships often returned groaning with prisoners. The raids from Sulu were devastatingly successful. Whole settlements were burned to the ground. Their inhabitants rounded up as chattel or killed outright. In some cases, entire towns were wiped completely off the map. From Balayan in Batangas 
all the way down to current surf capital Chargao. Records paint chilling scenes of devastation across the archipelago. Up to the 1860s, raiders were even recorded as far north as Ilocos. The great Baroque fortress churches that dotted the Philippines, like in Miyagao Church in Iloilo, whose walls were almost five feet thick, were built in response to these attacks. But even then, some could only stall the inevitable. In Tandag in current-day Surigao del Sur, the townspeople garrisoned themselves inside the church during an attack in 1754. But the attackers merely waited them out. After four months of siege, their defenses collapsed and the invaders poured in. A missionary tried to escape his fate by jumping off the bell tower. While some later writers would often paint these attacks as religiously motivated, revenge or a holy war even against Christian occupation, the raiders never bothered to discriminate among their victims. Various tribes and even fellow Muslims in Mindanao, Borneo, and Malaya also learned to fear those swift and terrible raiding parties. And then, in the start of the 18th century, as the Spanish, English, Dutch, and French vied for greater control of Southeast Asian trade routes, the creeping European intrusion into the Sulu Sea began to collide with the raiders. The islands of the Sulu Sea, including Holo, where the ruling sultan was based, were an important hub in a trade network that stretched from Celebes to Borneo to Singapore all the way to the cash-rich, luxury-hungry markets of China. The most prized exports among Chinese traders were sea cucumber or tripang and birds' nest for their cooking, as well as mother-of-pearl, which one Chinese observer said was better than those found in China. Naturally, the European colonial powers wanted bigger and bigger slices of this lucrative trade. As more traders began to pour into Holo, and various agents vied for influence in the Sultan's court, the Sulu archipelago became even richer. Historian James Francis Warren estimates that the Sulu trade brought in at least a quarter of a million Spanish dollars annually. And that was just from their ships trading with the Bugis kingdoms of Sulawesi. Slavery was the dark, terrible engine that kept this system running. And the bigger the economy grew, the fiercer the attacks became. What else would supply the cheap labor that would keep the market stocked and the prices competitive? In pearl fields in Laparan, Pangutaran, and Pilas, which could sometimes span 40 kilometers wide, thousands of slaves would be forced to dive into the shark-infested waters and gather pearls, of which maybe only one could be found among 1,000 shells. It was slaves who would scour the reefs to stuff sacks full of tripang or clamber across limestone crags in search of birds' nests or even row the ships that would capture even more slaves. Some even became slavers themselves 
just to escape a fate chained to the oars. At their height, the slaver fleets could be made up of up to 40 Jawanga, with each ship captained by a Nakoda, a veteran warrior with absolute command at sea. He directed a crew of more than a hundred sailors, plus an equal number of slaves to row and maintain the prahu. Marines aboard the ships, grim warriors who boarded vessels and assaulted towns did not report to the Nakoda, but instead had their own commander. On board at least one of the prahu was an imam, who could also settle disputes among the crews. When they were on the attack, the ships flew pennants with the Nakoda scholars, or flags emblazoned with a black raven that symbolized death. The Nakoda were bankrolled by the nobles, Various Panglima or Datu who contracted bands of warriors and outfitted or built their ships and operated the slave trade pretty much independently. While the Sultan laid claim to the whole of the archipelago and everyone who lived there, the reality was that it operated as a so-called segmentary state built on shifting sands of alliances and support. When it came to the slave raids, this was a double-edged arrangement. The Sultanate benefited greatly from the raids and would take up to a quarter of the share of the plunder. But in the 19th century, as pressure increased from the great trading powers to put a stop to piracy, the Sultan found his hands tied. As Henry Keppel, a British Royal Navy officer reported, it must now be feared that many whom the Sultan was able to hold in check will again follow their evil propensities unrestrained as they did under previous dynasties. By 1848, the Spanish Governor-General Narciso Claveria was getting fed up with the Sultan's inability to curb the pirate attacks. Besides, from his vantage point in Manila, his country's position in the region was looking a little shaky. The British agent in the Maimbang court, William Windham, a gunrunner, smuggler, and smooth talker who needed no translator when dealing with the Sulu nobles, was openly flying the British flag over his house in Holo. The English were also selling the Sultanate munitions from Calcutta cannons, flint, shot, muskets, and gunpowder. The French navy, on the other hand, had essentially forced the Sultan to sell the entire island of Basilan to them. The French king, however, did not ratify the sale. Meanwhile, slave raids in Spanish-controlled islands raged on. As recently as 1826, the entire western part of Bicol was deserted for fear of pirates. During his term, Claveria's Visayan constituents were noisily demanding swift action against any and all raiders. Claveria knew that a show of strong force was needed to assert Spanish dominance in the region. I find two different ways, he wrote to the home government of Madrid. One, to establish in the archipelago of Holo 
a great naval force or to send an expedition to Holo, occupy the island, oust the Sultan and the Datus that govern it, install a Spanish officer with these forces, and put him in control of the island of Holo. For now, however, the full occupation of Sulu was out of the question. But Claveria had already turned his eyes on another target, the Sama Balangingi. As Governor-General, Claveria pushed adamantly to reshape the islands into the Spanish image. To break the Sama Balangingi and Hispanize Sulu, Claveria knew that he needed to take away once and for all their mastery of the sea. The raiders took to the sea on oar and sail and were almost unstoppable. Spain would need to assert control and splinter the Prahu's supremacy into so much driftwood. Only then would the Datus, the Panglimas, the various skulking foreign agents, and even the Sultan himself recognize Spain as the true power in Sulu. A show of naval strength, that was what Claveria had recommended to Madrid, and one that the imperial Spanish mind understood in Italy. Elsewhere around the world, coal-fed steam engines were already transforming the naval and commercial fleets of the West. At the turn of the century, engineer William Symington plugged the steam engine into a riverboat and sailed it up the Forth and Clyde Canal in Scotland. Just over 40 years later, American and British shipping lines were competing to see which of their steam-powered cruise ships would cross the Atlantic faster. In 1826, the British steamship Diana saw action along the Irrawaddy River in the British war against the Kingdom of Burma. Less than 20 years later, a flotilla of English steamers threatened the cities of Nanking and Peking and forced the Dragon Throne to come to parley in the Opium War. The age of wind and sail was hurtling inexorably towards extinction and in the Philippines, the one during its end would be Narciso Claveria. Tune in to the next episode to continue the tale of the Battle of Balangingi. This podcast was written, created, and recorded by Leo Mangubat for Summit Books and produced by Kyla Diaz and Mark Delgado. For the episodes about the Battle of Balangingi, the books of James Francis Warren, 1981's The Sulu Zone, and 2002's Iranun and Balangingi proved invaluable to shed light on the background of the Balangingi and their greater sociopolitical context. The tale of C.Z. Peters was taken from the 1858 Journal of the Indian Archipelago. Domingo N. Non's 1993 paper, Moro Piracy During the Spanish Period and Its Impact, published in the journal Southeast Asian Studies, also gave additional information on the Moro raids. A few details have been embellished for dramatic purposes.